Good afternoon, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Knute. Coming up this afternoon, we'll take a look back on Manitoba's sugar beet industry. Also, Glendalee Allen-Wassler talks with the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. And up first in today's country comment, we'll talk about shelter belts with Richard Workington with the Stanley Soil Management Association. Latest farm news and market numbers all coming up over the next 60 minutes. The time now is 12 o'clock. Here's a look at our local news. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Manitoba Farm Journal. The Stanley Soil Management Association will be hosting its annual meeting via Zoom on March 15th. I got the details from Richard Warkington. We're inviting uh, Joe Gardner from, uh, he, uh, he's a cover crop uh, expert. <laughs> Anyway, he's into regenerative agriculture and so on. He's from the Clearwater area, and he's going to be talking about cover crops and soil health. That he'll be the main speaker, and then basically, otherwise, we'll be uh, we'll be talking about the projects that we did last year, and then um, updates on the Pembina Valley Watershed District uh, projects, also, which is in the area. Uh, was there a specific reason why uh, why cover crops were were chosen this year? Well, yes. Interestingly, uh, one of our board members um, is uh, kind of into uh, cover crops, and uh, and uh, it's kind of a topic. Uh, the whole topic of regenerative agriculture. We thought we would uh, have some speakers out uh, to talk about that uh, about that topic. Talk about some of the highlights, you know, over the past year for your group. Uh, some of the some of the projects you were involved in. Our bread and butter is still. Uh, shelter belt planting and uh, maintenance, uh, and uh, we planted, uh, we, we actually, and one of our biggest projects at this point is uh, since the, uh, the um, PFRA uh, um, tree nursery shut down in 2013, we're continuing to, uh, con- continuing to support uh, um, tree sales, so we, we actually have uh, trees available, people can order trees through us, and last year we sold uh, Oh, we sold about 20,000 trees uh, to area landowners and farmers and so on. And so that was one of our bigger projects. But we still, we did plant about, uh, about seven and a half miles and over, over 5,000 trees in that, uh, in that ballpark. And we still do shelter belt maintenance. So we, 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 now we usually do some spraying. Uh, we sprayed about 24 miles of trees, and we put on some plastic mulch for the for weed control for trees. About five miles of that. What is the benefit of having a shelter belt? There's a lot of benefits. Uh, um, the obvious one is uh, is to provide a shelter for the for the for the for the land, uh, and there's even uh, there's this matter of sheltering for from wind, like uh, protecting crops from wind, and um, and even right now, I've noticed even more than ever, uh, there's a el- big element of uh, snow uh, keeping keeping snow on the on the fields, so that uh, you know, so that the water doesn't just run off into the into the into the waterway, but uh, when it snow melts, it'll it'll stay on the field and uh, it'll benefit the crops. And there's been there's been a lot of research on uh, on even the increased crop yields due to shelter belts and those increased increase of crop yields could be due to various factors. It could be the wind, it could be a wind shelter, it could be uh, you know, additional moisture available to the crop, um, and it could be just like a little bit of a um, microclimate. There's a little bit extra, extra heat uh, that can be uh, uh, gathered when you have uh, the shelter belts there. 
on a year like this, you know, where we've had uh, quite a bit of snow, um, do you start to see that snow pile up on the fields? Well, there is snow on the fields, yeah. And, and shall, I would say the most part, uh, uh, the shelter belts help to distribute the snow throughout the field. And in some cases, uh, there's even, uh, you know, there's, if there's a denser, if it's a denser shelter belt, you seem to have, there's a bit of a pile of snow on each side of the shelter belt. But actually, underneath that snow, that, that snow will, will slowly uh, melt, and that, uh, that uh, it goes almost directly into the aquifer. The, the, when the snow melts, it uh, goes into the groundwater, and it's a great way to uh, recharge the groundwater. That was Richard Workington with the Stanley Soil Management Association. The group is hosting its annual general meeting March 15th. A look at what's happening in the markets this afternoon is coming up. Good afternoon, I'm Corey Canute. The federal government is seeking guidance on a path towards reducing emissions associated with fertilizer. AAFC Minister Marie-Claude Bibo has launched a new round of consultations beginning with the release of a discussion document. The consultations will focus on how to achieve Canada's national target to reduce absolute greenhouse gas emissions associated with fertilizers by 30% below 2020 levels by the year 2030. The discussion document is available for comment until June 3rd. Ukraine is the largest producer of sunflowers in the world. Chuck Penner with Leftfield Commodity Research says in the last few years, they've often accounted for about 30% of the total global crop. He talked about the impact of the war. The difficulty right now is that uh, crushed plants in Ukraine have largely shut down. Uh, so there is no oil being produced or being exported. The one effect is a is a short-term shortfall in in global sunflower oil production and and uh, supplies. If sunflowers uh, are 40% oil, uh, that's a whole lot of tons of oil that's simply not making it to market. So that spills over and and causes uh, buyers and importers to switch to other oils like palm oil or soy oil or if it was available, uh, more canola oil as well, too. Penner says in the coming weeks, Ukrainian farmers will have difficulty getting the crop planted, so next year's crop will also be threatened, leading to short supplies. And the Canadian Federation of Agriculture held its AGM last week. The Conservative Shadow Minister for Agriculture, John Barlow, told the group that agriculture's voice is not being heard by the Canadian public or the government. Let's look about some of the things that are going on right now. The government has put forward a net zero panel, no representation from agriculture. They've announced changes to fertilizer use and emissions. No consultation with agriculture. Barlow says if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it should teach us that food security and Canadian agriculture are integral not only to our daily lives, but to Canada's economic recovery. That was a look at today's Farm News. I'm Corey Canute. Good afternoon and welcome to the Prairie Eggwire for Monday, March 7th. I'm Corey Canute. Coming up today, Glenda Lee Allen Vossler will chat with the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association about a potential CP rail strike. Today, Glenda Lee Allen Vossler talks with the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, Bob Lowe, about the potential impact for the beef sector if we see a CP rail strike. Talk to us a little bit about your concerns and and why you don't want to see a strike. Of course, we never want to see a, a rail strike, but specifically from your sector, what is the concern? Well, Brundley, I mean, as you know, the drought last summer and basically no feed production on the prairies uh, 
we're running on imported corn from the U.S. to feed the cattle herd, currently in the feeding sector, the feedlot sector. But, and, and I mean, there's different numbers of what we need a week, but it's somewhere around eight train loads of corn a week just to keep us even. And so you can imagine it's kind of a logistical nightmare. And we went through the rail slowdowns here six weeks ago and got that handled. And before it was a, a real catastrophe. And this is, this is really the last thing we need to see happen. If, if this corn shuts off, I'm not sure what the consequences will be. There is no options. I mean, there is no feed, so there is no option. You're saying a, a lot of producers are kind of running on a train by train basis here, right? That's the way. That's the way the whole industry is running. There just isn't enough. <laughs> there just isn't enough trucks, trains, automobiles, anything to get enough corn up here to get a uh, cushion. So it's coming up. You know, it's coming up kind of on a on a just-in-time basis, like the rest of the world's been operating on for quite a while. I have a hard time putting that together as far as feeding cattle goes, because, you know, they're like us. If they miss a day's food, it's that's not a good thing. No. So, and, and, and just being the, the logistics of getting enough up to have a, a carryover just isn't, it's just not feasible. So, yeah, we're we're just in time. I mean, probably the industry's got, as an industry, maybe 10, 10 to 12 days of, of feed on hand. So that's, that's not very much. <laughs> no, it, it, it certainly isn't. Not when we're talking about the number of cattle that are being impacted by this. Like if you figure, you know, roughly a million head of cattle. So that's, that's, that's quite a big number. Now, you're saying that if if in the event they can't reach a solution before CP's strike deadline, you want to see them go direct to binding arbitration? We'd like to see them go to binding arbitration before the deadline. I don't even know if that's possible, but we really can't stand these trains to quit moving. As an industry, and it's not just the cattle industry, I mean, we're probably the most visible ones, but it's it's a hog industry, it's I suspect the chicken industry. Um, none of us produced any feed, so so we're basically all relying on imported feed, corn and DDGs from the U.S. So we really can't, you know, we, we really can't stand the trains to shut down for one day. So we might have weather events that we absolutely can't get through. That's that's Mother Nature, but for a human-caused event to... Uh, to do this is kind of unimaginable to me. So we really, yeah, we really don't. We want, we would like them to go into bonding arbitration before the trains actually shut down. From what we understand, they wouldn't, that would keep them from shutting down. It just seems as though it's been one thing after another for the livestock sector. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what it seems like. And, you know, we got, it's a really bright future. And the last thing we need is, you know, human-caused things to derail it. <laughs> yeah. So, 
you know, I've, I've, I've got faith we can get this done just because the consequences of not being able to get it done are beyond comprehension. That's Bob Lowe, president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. For Golden West, I'm Glendalee Allen-Bossler. Thanks, Glendalee. That's it for the Prairie Eggwire for today. If you have any questions or opinions to share, send them to us by email, thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. On behalf of Glendalee Allen-Bossler, I'm Corey Canute. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. The Prairie Eggwire will return tomorrow on the Golden West Farm Network. Time now for a look at the farm calendar. Farm Credit Canada presents the Women Entrepreneur Summit in a virtual setting tomorrow. Visit the FCC website for details. Marmac Farms and Guest Bull Sale is scheduled for March 9th at the farm near Brandon. Sale gets underway at 1 p.m. Visit marmacfarms.net for details. Farm Credit Canada is holding a Farmland Values Report webinar on March 15th. Get the details on the FCC website. The Stanley Soil Management Association is hosting its AGM March 15th at 7 p.m. via Zoom. You can call or text 204-362-0352 to register. Manitoba Canola Growers is holding a webinar entitled On the Seed or on the Beetle, which is more effective, March 16th at 11.30 a.m. You can register on their website. And the Sustainability of Canadian Agriculture Conference is planned from March 16th to the 18th. It'll be co-hosted by the University of Manitoba's National Centre for Livestock and the Environment and Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Details on the University of Manitoba Agriculture website. Continuing with the Manitoba Farm Journal here on this Monday afternoon. CFAM Radio 950 is celebrating its 65th anniversary this month. To celebrate, we're taking a look back on events that shaped the agriculture industry here in Manitoba. Ian Forrester with the St. Joseph Museum joins me today to look back on Manitoba's sugar beet industry. Sugar beet came in with the original settlers. Uh, I, I think sugar beet, sugar was such a huge commodity even way back in the 1800s that there's records of it being of them being grown in the 1840s, um, not commercially. Uh, didn't really get going till the 1900s, uh, and I guess in 1930 there was a concerted effort to get some acres grown. And sugar, be- sugar the beets themselves were delivered to Grand Forks to be processed for four or five years until 1935, and then the growers in the states complained enough that they shut that down. Were they being processed in, in Manitoba then? or Not, not no. till uh, 1940. What made them uh, successful here? I guess we had the right climate and the soil conditions. Sugar beets like uh, a cooler climate, um, and uh, so we were quite suitable to their growth. Had enough moisture and uh, didn't need a lot of irrigation to get them growing. And there was a huge shortage of sugar after the First World War, so there was a big demand for sugar to be grown anywhere that it could be. And when did it really kind of take off here in Manitoba? Uh, 1940 would have been the factory in Win- in Manitoba. Uh, the the factory in Winnipeg had opened up then, so the production would have been started acres f- for that factory for that process in a big circle around Winnipeg because the factory was in Winnipeg. So there was a, a defined limit of distance that you could truck the raw beets. So it would have been within that area. What led to uh, that crop being phased out? Uh, lots of Sugar beets in Manitoba and in Canada has always had a huge problem with dumped sugar competing against it from the world. And uh, in the end, the general agreement on tariff and trade with the U.S. killed it, uh, the, the, uh, killed the industry in Manitoba. The, the U.S. would not allow sugar-containing products to be delivered into the states, which a lot of our sugar beets, uh, our sugar was used for. 
uh, processed goods that would be delivered into the States. So there was no market for our sugar. We were competing on the table sugar market against uh, large amounts of dumped cane sugar and beet sugar coming into this into Canada. So we just couldn't compete. How did farmers react um, here in Manitoba? I think quite a, a state of resignation. Quite a quite a few farmers had quit. I think there had been 600 growers at one time. The last year there was only 230. Um, and uh, just we just shut it down and moved into corn and edible beans, uh, crops that were um, a lot more risky, I'd say. The sugar beets, if you got them established, they would just grow. But uh, we had lots of issues with those other two crops over the years, but they were the replacements. Just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the St. Joseph Museum here on the board there. Um, is there um, machinery or, or, or different artifacts at the museum there that people can uh, sort of revisit the past? Or? You bet. There's, there's uh, quite a big uh, display shed with lots of interesting equipment in it from way back in the 30s, stuff that never really worked, uh, right up to, uh, I guess, Heston harvesters from the from the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, and and not a lot of the newer stuff after that. Uh, back in 96, the equipment got really good, and but that kept that was still being used, so it didn't get into the museum. But yes, there are lots of planters, cultivators, special tractors that were set up with uh, proper row spacings, and it, it was a row crop, so you had to have the right spacings and uh, some really neat stuff, as well as some handheld tools that were used uh, back in the early 30s. It was all done by hand. Digging and harvesting was all done by hand. In June, there usually is a, uh, a parade that we have at the St. Joe Museum, and uh, I think towards the middle of June, we have a, a, a weekend and a, and a parade on, on a Saturday, and a lot of the old sugar beet equipment will be in that parade, if we can get it running. It's been a couple of years. That was Ian Forrester with the St. Joseph Museum. He joined me today to take a look back on Manitoba's sugar beet industry. It was part of celebrations taking place this week to commemorate CFAM Radio 950's 65th anniversary. Another look at what's happening in the markets heading into the close is coming up in just a moment. Time now for another look at today's farm news. The Conservative Shadow Minister for Agriculture says labour is a key concern for the ag sector. John Barlow told the Canadian Federation of Agriculture that we're falling further and further behind. We don't have the labour needed to meet our potential or our commitments. The last stat I saw was Canadian farmers have lost $2.9 billion in sales as a result of labour shortages. That is a staggering number. He says they will be bringing forward a couple of private members' bills to address the situation and will be pushing the government to focus on solutions. Barlow spoke last week during the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, AGM. And sunflower crush plants in Ukraine have largely shut down. This will have a major impact on global sunflower oil, as Ukraine is the largest producer of sunflowers in the world. Chuck Penner with Leftfield Commodity Research shares another concern. The longer-term effect is the concerns that in the coming weeks, uh, Ukrainian farmers will have difficulty getting a crop planted. So, so the next year's crop is also threatened. Supplies of that could be very short. Penner says, to a large extent, the North American sunflower markets have often been insulated from what goes on in the global market. The reason for this is because not a lot of sunflower oil gets exported from the U.S. and Canada. Most of it is consumed domestically. That could change, however, with a sharp decline from Ukraine. I'll be back after this to wrap up today's program.
We've come to the end of another Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Canute. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email, thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. Today's closing numbers with more in-depth commentary on what's happening in the markets is coming up at 10 to 2 on the Markets Farm Program. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. Hope you can join us back here tomorrow starting at 12 noon.